Um, but thank you all so much for being here. I hope you got a Bible. We're going to be in John chapter 2. Um, we are coming off chapter 1 where Jesus has, in, has been introduced to us by John um, as these three, um, kind of with these three major pillars or in these three major identities. Um, if you remember, there is, uh, there is the first few verses reveals Jesus as the eternal word of God. That God, if you were to put all of his, his words, all of his thoughts, all of his essence, all of his heart and mind, and, and however you could, uh, could imagine that, if you could put all of God words into a person, um, if you could make those words flesh, Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. But He's more than that. Um, we learn that He's the divine blessing, that this, this thing that we chase after, this desire that we have to be connected to God and to know God and be known by God, Jesus is the ultimate grace of God. He's the grace upon grace of God. He is the divine blessing, the favor that the ancients sought after, that you need, that you desire, that you want. He is the divine blessing. But more than that, He is the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb of God that does more than just wash away sins for one year. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world through a once and for all sacrifice. And it's based on these identities of Jesus that people can come and see, that people can, in the past came and, and know, knew, and that we can come and know Him as God. And it's because these are surefire, um, it, it's because these are so you know, established and, and we have confidence that Jesus is the Word, He is the blessing, He is the Lamb. It's because these are so surefire that if we build a community around Jesus' method and model, if we follow Him and if we uh, take after Him and if we present Him, we can truly say to people, come and see, and that can be enough to draw people in and that can be enough to see people's lives change. Jesus is enough to draw people in. He's the Word of God. He's the blessing from God. He's the Lamb of God. And that's enough to change hearts of people. And thankfully, because of John's gospel, we are given plenty of come and see material to use as we promote and we proclaim. And, and, and really, we talked last week about this idea that we should be able to say, come and see. And we should be an environment. We should be a community that, that, that kind of facilitates, that helps that, that, that process of coming and seeing and knowing that Jesus is God made flesh and that he has a purpose and a place for you in his kingdom. And, and here, here's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to kind of lean into that come and see talk a little bit more um, before we get into our text. Um, because, you know, if you think about it, and, I, and I, we didn't talk about this last time because I think it was just kind of in the moment we didn't want to distract ourselves. But isn't it true, and maybe you thought about this, and maybe you've wondered as I've talked about this, um, the whole come and see mentality, the whole come and see invitation. Come and see kind of flies in the face of have faith and believe. But isn't it true that when we talk about coming and seeing that you should be able to say to somebody, come and see, come and see, then you'll know, you'll experience, you'll have a, a life-changing you know, time with Jesus. Isn't it true that come and see kind of flies in the face of what we talk about a lot in church, this idea that we should have faith or believe in or believe something? Because often the way we promote the way we preach, the way we proclaim, it doesn't always suggest that we're really asking people to come and see. And, and here's what I mean. Isn't it true that we often talk about Christianity, we often invite people to believe and have faith as if there is no evidence, as if there is no proof, as if there is nothing to have confidence in. We often present Christianity to people, and we often present it in a way that if people begin to ask questions, if people begin to say, well, you know, how can I know, and is there proof, is there, you know, what confidence can I have? 
isn't it true that we often present Christianity in this fight or flight way that you either believe it or you don't believe it, you either trust it or you don't have any proof? Isn't it true that we kind of present Christianity as this house of cards? And if anybody begins to ask any question or begin to wonder, hey, what about that? And how do you prove that? And how can you explain that? We just run away and the cards fall in our aftermath. We often are afraid to talk about reason and evidence when it comes to Christianity. And often we, we are afraid of equating and, and, and associating the words faith and belief with reason and evidence. It's almost as if unless you are willing to believe blindly, there's no room for you. You know, we kind of dance around people's question and it's more like we're pre- presenting something to hope in and hope for rather than believe in or trust and, and, and I got good news for you tonight. And, and you know, if you're a Christian, and, you, know, you guys are, and y'all, y'all believe, and y'all have done this deal, but uh, you know, this is, this is you know, kind of supplementary for y'all, but really this might be good news to help you understand maybe why some other people don't understand. Um, and, and maybe it helps you understand that some of the questions that you were told you shouldn't ask, maybe they were valid. And maybe they're questions that you can go back and reconsider, and because of the way you've come to believe and because of what you know, you can you know, understand them in a better light, and you might be better equipped and better, better prepared to help somebody else because there are plenty of people that have questions and there are plenty of people who they don't understand. And the idea of faith and belief to them seems to suggest that they have to just completely buy into something that they aren't allowed to ask questions about. But I got good news. Christianity is better than that. And I think that this stems from a lack of understanding or a lack of preparation when it comes to handling the Scripture and upholding the scripture, and, and you guys are the ones that God has called out to, to, to take the gospel to the world. So this is so important tonight and so essential for us as a church. John's gospel is vital in helping us get this right. And this reality is, is the amazing thing about John's gospel. And, and, and don't walk out when I say this, but this is, this is really good news. So don't take it the wrong way. John's gospel is not a take it by faith or a just believe gospel. And what I mean by that is John's gospel is not, here's some stuff about Jesus. You just got to believe it. You just got to take it by faith and run with it and don't look back. John's gospel is not one of those gospels. And honestly, the Bible is not anything like that at all. And that's not the message of the Bible. It's better than that. And John's gospel particularly, it, take, it, it confronts that kind of weird religious superstition that we kind of have let crept, crept, in, you know, crept into the church over the years. John's gospel confronts that idea that you just got to take it by faith. You just got to you know, believe and, and, and against all reason believe. John's gospel is better than that. And, and here's why that's so important. The Bible was written by eyewitnesses. People that saw it, people that experienced it, people that, that, that witnessed and recorded what they saw and what they heard with their own eyes. And that is so important as we take the Word of God to the world, especially when it comes to the New Testament. They experience things that, they, that we can still feel the ripple effects from. But if we're not careful, if we're not careful, just believe and because of faith can become misconstrued into a form of magic. Where we're gravitating towards faith because someone scared us or someone promised us something, but we find ourselves baited for and after the wrong object. And here's what I mean. So many people file into buildings like this because they're waiting to be proven. They're waiting to be convinced. They're waiting to be shown something that will show them there's something to believe when we have already been given that a long time ago. But it's because of how we present the Bible and it's the way we have presented 
into the Bible through the years. And it's the way we've witnessed to people that has left a gap in our evangelism. And so many places are waving flags, at so, you, know, you know, bringing people under this idea that, hey, we'll show you something to believe in when we have been able to do that for years. And here's the thing, the danger is that our faith is so fragile and it's so wishy-washy. It's so fleshy and it's so carnal. It's so, what have you done for me lately? If our faith, if Christianity becomes all about, you know, you know this take it by faith and this, this just have faith, brother or sister, this, if it becomes like that, it's so fragile, it's so wishy-washy, it's so, you know, circumstantial based. There's no roots to it. There's no security. It's not faith rooted in anything other than faith. It's this idea that maybe something will happen one day. Maybe I'll see something one day. Maybe I'll experience something one day. Maybe God will be made real to me one day like somebody else said that He was made real to them. But we're missing the message of the gospel. These ideas that often distract people, that's, they're not... Christian uh, preaching that's magic or superstition. And, and I preach this not because I want to take hope away from anybody that's waiting on something, but because I want to give you, and I think God wants to give you genuine faith. But it's important that we understand what we're believing in and why we can believe. And this is why John's gospel is so helpful. Because John does not expect you just to believe something because somebody said it. John says, you know what, you need more than that, and there is more than that. John does not just expect you to say, well, hey, I heard that, and maybe one day I'll get it for myself, but until then, I'm just holding on. John says it's better than that, and someone convinced John, or maybe the Spirit, of, of course, convinced him, but inspired him to, as an old man to write down the things that he had seen and heard, and, and John's gospel is so unique. John's gospel is different than any other of the gospels because John is the only one, um, he's the only gospel writer who editorializes and comments on the activity in, of and the events surrounding Jesus. So only in John's gospel will you read verses that come after the events or verses that come after the words of Jesus um, or verses that come after the narrative. John is the only one of the writers who will put, who will add his own words or will comment on what happened as if he's wanting to say, I'm not just telling you what happened. I'm telling you why it happened. And John would say, I've outlived everybody, so I think I've earned the authority to say these things and to explain these things. And I want to show you how John ends his gospel, because this is very important as we get into the signs section of John. John wrote at the end, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the, son, is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John says, I'm not just asking you to believe and hope. I'm giving you evidence. I'm giving you proof. I'm writing what I've seen and what I've heard and what I've experienced. And I believe this is enough for every generation to come that if you believe, if you trust, if you place your faith in what I'm telling you and the person I'm telling you about, by believing, you will have life in His name. That this is not something that is free of reason or free of evidence. I'm going to give you plenty of that. Because I saw it, and I heard it, and now I'm writing it. John's gospel from here on out is set up like this. John's going to write about 
several key events that happened in the, in the ministry of Jesus. And John's going to explain to us that these were not random events. These were not just events that Jesus decided to do, you know, on accident or, you know, just randomly happened because he's just so powerful and he can't control it. These events were intentional signs, were intentional signs to point us to, toward who he is, and they will serve as evidence. So follow the progression. These, are, these events are signs that will serve as evidence so that you can believe something about Jesus and that you might trust in him as that something, as that someone, as the Messiah of God. Does that make sense? That these things happened, and John says they weren't just random. John would say, I watched Jesus step over hundreds of sick people. And find that one guy near the pool. I watched Jesus walk by so many women at the well with their pots on their heads. But he went to that one. I watched Jesus go go past so many others that were hungry and needy. And he would always go to these specific people because he would do something so specific, so personal, so important. that That event was not just a random act of kindness. It was a sign. It was evidence that you might could believe, that you might could trust in. This is not faith because of faith. It's faith because of Jesus. So Christianity may be better than what you had been taught. It may be uh, better than what you have been uh, led to believe. It doesn't begin with believe and hope. It begins with see or hear and trust. You know, John wrote all these events down and explained them like, uh, like to say this is enough for every generation. These signs are going to be enough for every generation to come. And, and John is very intentional. John never uses the word miracle. John always uses the word sign, which is I'm going to explain why this is very important. And, and, and what John, the reason why he's so particular with that word sign is John wants us to know the supernatural acts of Jesus weren't random acts of kindness. They were signs that pointed to something. That Jesus never did anything accidental or anything unintentional. These supernatural acts of Jesus, they were not random. I mean, he could have done a lot more if he wanted to, but they were intentional. They were signs that pointed to something. On one occasion, someone asked Jesus about his ability to heal somebody, and Jesus said, you think that's hard. What about forgiving sins? And then he said this, but the, I did this, that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So Jesus was trying to demonstrate, and these signs demonstrate and manifest and make clear that Jesus is the Savior from God, the Messiah of God, the Son of God, who can do something for us that nothing else and no one else can do for us. Now, it's easy to get enamored with the signs and the wonders, but John makes it clear that these miracles were not random occurrences that could happen any time. They were specific to point us to Jesus. He doesn't want us to be enamored with the signs. He wants us to be enamored with Jesus. And you think that shouldn't have to be said, but I I think that that does. Much like in the Old Testament, when God told Moses he was going to be able to turn the the stick into a serpent or turn the, the, you know, stick his hand in his garment and pull it out and, you know, it would be leprous and not leprous. John, like, uh, John presents Jesus like God had told Moses. These signs would be testimonies to your true nature and identity. And, And again, it's so important because I think so many of us miss this and we get confused about this sort of thing. Jesus, the supernatural acts of Jesus weren't random power plays. They were signed with a purpose to identify him as the Messiah. Jesus is not a model to emulate. He is a savior to obey. 
Again, this makes it so clear. We aren't to become enamored with the signs, but rather enamored with Jesus. We don't chase after replicating the signs as, as the same reason we don't try to duplicate the Savior. Jesus is enough. And, and John ends his gospel summarizing all the signs he recorded, telling us the accounts are a means to an end, and Jesus is that end. So with all that being said, we get to Jesus' first sign, or John's first sign that he uh, tells us about Jesus, uh, which is famously the story of the water turning to Wine. Um, so John one or John two verses one through three. Let's read those again. The scripture says, "On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there, uh, and it says that Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding." And, and I just want to say this: I'm so glad that stories like this are in the Bible because Jesus was present. Um, you know, Jesus is not just sitting in the back of the synagogue all the time with his glasses on and the Bible up in his face. He's not just behind a pulpit with a suit and tie on saying, I can't, you know, come out, I can't come hang out with you. I can't be seen there. Jesus was in the world, right? He was in the trenches. He was in the society. He was at a wedding. He was at Matthew's house, right? He was hanging out with this group. He was hanging out with that group. He was being gossiped about because he was hanging out with the wrong people. Jesus did not just hide in a box. He didn't just go to a corner of the world where he couldn't touch not and you know, handled not. He was in the world. He was present. He was amidst the people because he wanted people to know that he was a friend. He was a savior. He was someone who would be with them wherever they were and would not judge or would not turn away just because of the setting or the environment. Now, there's nothing sinful about a wedding in and of itself, but I think it's important to know that Jesus wasn't just in certain religious places all the time, right? He was amidst the people. He was in the flow of life from here to there, from the wedding to a man's house late one night that wanted to talk about stuff he couldn't talk about in public, from a well where it was, you know, just a woman in the middle of the day. He, Jesus was present, and that's important to know because wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, He can be there too. And it says in verse number 3 that when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And, and, and we don't know. You know, we can speculate and people can be cute and talk about, you know, Jesus as a kid and Mary walking up to him and saying, hey, can you fix this? And, you know, Joseph's dead or, I don't, you know, gone. I don't know. I mean, we don't know what happened to Joseph. He just kind of disappeared one day. But, hey, Jesus, can you fix this? You know, snap his fingers. We don't know that Jesus ever did that kind of stuff, right? Now, Mary seemed to have a hunch that Jesus was more than just a man or more than just a person, right? He had something about him that was different. Uh, but we don't have any record of Jesus. Jesus, you know, just performing miracles. You know, hey, Jesus, wash the dishes, and he does this, and they're washed, right? We don't know if he actually did that kind of stuff. We, you know, maybe he did. If I, I mean, if I was him, I would do that, but hey, I'm not him, and y'all are lucky uh, that I'm not, right? So, and, and likewise, right? So we don't know what Jesus did with his powers, but again, as John has, has told us, Jesus never did anything that didn't intentionally and specifically and purposefully point people to who he was and what God was up to. So Jesus' mom says, hey, Jesus, we're out of wine. And Jesus kind of looks at her, and, and, you know, this is just, it's kind of, the translation is hard to really understand the, the language he was using back then. He wasn't being smart to her when he said woman. He was just saying, you know, it was kind of a way of not saying mom, right? You know, he didn't want people to say, well, that's Jesus, and, you know, it's his mom. And he's just, you know, he wanted people to kind of respect him for, you know, addressing her as his elder, as the host of this event. And, and you know, he says, you know, hey, you know, woman or lady, you know, what has this got to do with me? And I think he's kind of winking because nobody knows who he is yet, right? He hasn't done these signs yet. And I think he's kind of winking at his mom like, you know, Mary, you know, mom, you're not supposed to tell people who I am yet. This isn't why I came. I came to save the world, not save a wedding. You know, your caterers are the problem. You know, and we don't really know. Maybe he kind of winked at her and said, hey, this is not why I came. Don't help me as a savior just yet because I don't want people lined up out the door, you know, for autographs and 
you know, miracles, which would happen after a while, right? And Jesus would have to just literally leave town because people would line up for miles. Um, so we don't know the context of that, but it would suggest that Mary was kind of nudging Jesus to, you know, show who he was. Um, maybe in efforts to save her from ever, uh, from never being able to cater or host a wedding again. I don't know. Um, but there's more. Verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not come. And his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. So she kind of looks at him and says, We're going to talk about this later. But she puts him on the spot. She talks to her team and she says, Y'all listen to him. And of course, Jesus, being a good son, (laughs) says, I can't let my mom down. But, of course, he had this planned all along. This was not just going to be a moment to show his power but a moment to send a message. It says there in verse number six that there were six water pots, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now, in the ancient world, the Jews were obsessed with being clean. Um, you think, you know, we live in a world where hand sanitizer on, is on every corner. Man, they had it. They carried it in their pockets. They put hand sanitizer on top of their hand, on the back of their hand, right? They put it in their elbow crease. They put it wherever you could put it. But they didn't just use hand. They couldn't use that, right? Of course they didn't. But they had to wash their hands all the time. They washed their hands, washed their elbows, washed their knees, washed their feet. You walked in a house, and if you didn't smell, if you smelled a little bit off, you were unclean, and everyone else was unclean. They would inspect you if you came into the synagogue and you didn't look at, you know, completely buttoned up. They would make sure that you had not gotten near a dead animal, touched a dead animal, or touched somebody else that wasn't dead, you know, a person that you shouldn't have been around. They were so meticulous. It was, they were paranoid with being unclean. They washed, before every ceremony, before any kind of, you know, know, kind of official religious event, they would have a foot washing ceremony, and a hand washing ceremony, and an elbow washing ceremony. So these stones, uh, these stone pots would have been uh, for those cleansing ceremonies. And, and, and to be more uh, kind of to the message, the stone jars were icons that symbolized the traditions that Jesus had come to replace Of course, Jesus came to bring us something to do for us, what the law and its ceremony and its, you know, religion could not do. And this is a moment that Jesus sees all of these pots, all of these ceremonial, you know, these ways of being purified. Jesus thinks this is an opportunity for me to introduce myself to the world, to the group here at Cana, and to show them I have come to do for them what these pots, what these ceremonies, what this religion has not been able and will not be able to do. Jesus used what would be replaced to point to what would be put in place. The temporary arrangement of the Old Testament was going to be replaced by something new. Verse number 7, Jesus said, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Very important that they fill them all the way up. This is a picture of the water provided for purification, all to the, the filling of the pots. It stands for the whole ancient order of Jewish ceremony. So here's what Jesus is saying. We're going to fill these pots up, every one of them, and I'm going to use this as a way to symbolize that I have come to fulfill and replace every last tradition, every last ritual, every last Old Testament standard, every last rite, every last law, every last religious tradition that must be completed for you to be holy. I have come to fulfill every single one of them because I have come to establish a brand new way, and this stuff that's just left you dead and empty and tasteless and fruitless, I've come to give you a better way. 
verse number 8, it says that he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Now, John never tells us that a miracle took place because they all knew this story so much. And this was so prolific in the day and age of Jesus and his, in his aftermath. People just knew the first miracle was the water to wine. But there's no moment where Jesus goes over and does bippity-boppity-boo and turns the water into wine, right? He just did it. And, and, and it says in verse 9, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, the master drinks the water, right? But when he drinks it, he sees it as wine. He never, you know, there was never this moment where Jesus was like, oh, attention everyone, let's all, you know, bring attention to me because I'm going to do a miracle that you have never seen before. He just did it. And then this, in, in this exchange, the master takes the water that was made wine and he, and he didn't know where it came from, but of course people had figured it out. And he says in verse 10, Every man at the, beginning of the, uh, at the beginning sets out the good wine. When the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you've kept the good stuff till last. Now, in the ancient Jewish world, we'll talk about this more in a minute, but in the ancient Jewish world, weddings would take place over a whole week. Um, and among other things, they drank a lot. Um, you know, and that's what's changed, right? In today's world with weddings, that's something that people still do. But in the ancient Jewish world, they would start drinking on Monday and they would be drinking until Friday. And as long as they got home and weren't acting up before the Sabbath, they were okay. But, but the master of the feast, he says, you know, most people are a little more savvy, a little more shrewd. They get people good and drunk on Monday and then they just start giving people the leftovers because nobody knows what they're drinking at this point. But Jesus... I know some of my guests are not sober enough to know this, but Jesus, 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 this is the best. This is the most rich. This is the most fine wine we've ever tasted. (laughs) Judaism has set the stage for what was to come, and God through Israel established a covenant that would always anticipate and speak of something better. So when John came on the scene and said, here's the Lamb of God, they knew what the Lamb of God meant, right? They understood that, hey, He is taking something that's old and doing it better and doing it new. And Jesus uses this wine to let them know something new, something better had come. And He was completely separating Himself from the old. And He was saying, what old has passed away, all things have become new. The traditions you've been leaning on, the religion you've been clinging to that has not been doing any good for anybody, it has been revealed placed in full. What was tasteless is now tasteful. What was dead is now alive. What was empty is now full. What didn't change a heart is now replaced with something that's going to transform every single one. And this is important to understand that there's something brand new. This is, some, this is a clean cut. And that's why when Jesus talked about the transition, talked about the old and the new, he said things like this. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. And when people, when Jesus showed up, he went and made it clear, I'm not just another prophet. I'm not just the next chapter. I'm a new age. I'm the new thing. This is not just, you know, Ten Commandments plus Jesus. This is Jesus plus or minus nothing. He said in that same passage, Neither is new wine poured into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins so that both are preserved. Now here's what he's saying by that. That the, the old would be ruined as well if you mix the new and the old. So there is, some, there is still value in the old. There is still importance and inspiration in the old. He's not saying that just throw it out, it's not any good anymore. 
Because it's still inspired and there's still truth and there's still understanding and application to the new, but it takes precedent or it takes it follows after the precedent and it comes under the filter and the interpretation of the new. So if you want to know what the old means, read it through the new because otherwise you might get a little confused. And of course, many and throughout the ages have done that. And that's why the church has been so back and forth in this tug of war um, in terms of presenting the gospel and wondering what, to, what parts of the old to include and what parts of the new takes precedent. Now, again, 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 this wasn't just a random miracle nor a model to replicate. It was an extraordinary sign. God had saved the best for last, which would actually last forever. And here's why I make a big deal about that. We don't need another moment like this, just like we don't need more signs, we don't need another Pentecost, we don't need more revelation. The gospel and the witness of the gospel in the Word is enough. And here's why I make a big deal about that. Because so often we are so quick to move past the Word and the message of Jesus because we've heard it so much. Right? You've heard it so much, and it's just old news to you at this point. And it's, not, and it's lost its power as good news. But I guarantee none of us have soaked up all of Jesus that He has provided through this truth. What it can do and what it can change about us. And in this next section, the Jews come to Jesus and they start begging for more signs. Because as soon as He performs more miracles, people are whispering and talking about it. So these people come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we saw what you did back there. So when are you taking this show on the road? I mean, hey, you could make some money if you mean, you know how many weddings you could save? You know how many parties you could get employed for? I mean, hey, Jesus, just do this any other day of the week, and man, you would be bankrolled. I mean, hey, Jesus, when is the next sign? And he refuses to do one. He says, hey, guys, if y'all want a sign, the only th- every sign I do points to the death and resurrection that's about to come. And that's the point of this sign, the resurrection that comes from what was thought to be tasteless and empty. You know, we live in a generation of sign seekers. Every generation has, has these. But we live in a generation of sign seekers, but we've yet to soak up all that Jesus did and the changes His Word can bring. Look at verse 11. It says, this is the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and how He manifested His glory in His disciples. His disciples believed in him. And the little Greek phrase, believed in for us is two words in English, but in Greek, it's one word. It's a little Greek word that is so unique, and John used a Greek word that is not used anywhere else in the, anywhere else in ancient Greek literature. John literally invented a word, and it's not believe about, it's not believe in, but it's trust in. It says, as in put your weight on. John says, because of this sign, because of the demonstration of what Jesus did and what it was pointing to, many believed in, many put their faith in, many trusted in Jesus. As in they saw the bigger picture and they thought, aha, we get it. Now, unlike John, our faith doesn't come through seeing. Our faith comes through hearing. This is why the Bible is so important and to understand and sit under and read and why I take it so, it's such a sacred opportunity to hold the Word of God and preach it and do what I do. And and anytime you hold the Bible, we we come to faith by hearing, and that's why the Bible is so important, because we are invited to believe by hearing the account of what happened, what the eyewitnesses recorded. 
John knew many would read this for years to come, and John wants us to know that because of what he saw, he was convinced, and we can trust in that. And the Apostle Paul would write this in Romans 10. Faith comes from hearing, from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. In the Word of God, the Word of Christ, the Bible is trustworthy. It's trustworthy. And this is, this is where the Holy Spirit comes in and does a job that I can't do because I can't convince you and nobody can convince you, but only God can. But there's something trustworthy that it's all resting on. Because it's not just a book, right? Before there was a book, before there was a leather-bound Bible, before 300 or so A.D., whenever the uh, council decided this would be the Bible, and it wasn't leather-bound back then, it was just on lambskin or parchment or whatever. But before there was an official Bible, documents scattered here and there, but before that, there was the cornerstone of our faith, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And from that cornerstone, inspired by that cornerstone, predicting that cornerstone, and showing us how to practice that cornerstone, the old and the new, comes our Bible. And before you go, I want to bring a very practical application to this text to build off um, what we've established and I think it'll really understand, show us how this practice part comes true for me in this chapter. Um, I, I want to talk about, how, um, about what can change about our lives in light of the sign of Jesus, um, the, the sign that he performed, and what this means to us, um, and, and how we can understand that Jesus is the new wine that keeps on reviving us and keeps on transforming us. Now, I want to show you something. Maybe you've seen this before, maybe you haven't. But John's gospel opens up in a very unique way, um, calling back to ancient traditions both Jew and Greeks would understand. But some of, the, uh, some of these are beaming right in front of us. Some uh, aren't. But there's one very obvious and glaring callback. Um, John 1, 1 opens up. We've already read this and studied this, but I haven't brought attention to it until just now. John 1, 1 opens up, and it says, In the beginning was the Word. And clearly, John 1, 1, in the beginning is wanting us to think about Genesis 1-1. In the beginning was God. And John says, in the beginning was the Word. And he informs us the Word was God, was with God, and is Jesus. You know, the Word made flesh is Jesus. So John is clearly wanting us to have Genesis on our mind because as Genesis told the creation story, John's telling the recreation story. How something that's dead is giving something life. And if you notice throughout the first and second chapter of John's gospel, you'll notice that there's a progression of days. You'll notice that in John 1 verse 19 is the first day of the narrative. And in John 1 verse 29, it says the next day. In verse 35, it says the next day. Verse 43, it says the next day. And then in chapter 2 verse number 1, it says three days after that. And if you add those up, you have a seven-day period. In the beginning was the Word. And then on the day one, on day two, on day three, on day four, on day five, on day six and day seven. I don't think John is being coincidental. I don't think it's ironic that John begins his gospel in a very Genesis-like fashion as he's telling this recreation story. I think it's important to see that connection, don't you? Now, from there on out, John does not mention days or does not keep track of days, just like Genesis doesn't mention days after chapter 2. But this can't be coincidental, and you don't start our book in the beginning and not call back to what Genesis was trying to say, and you don't, you know, you don't bring that connection. Also, also, John 2 is about a wedding, a wedding, a union of a man and a woman, and that's a clear connection to how Genesis introduces to us to the first man and the first woman and how they are united or married or wed from the very beginning. If 
you'll remember Genesis 1 ends like this. God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. It was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work and that he had done, and he rested. He didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because he was finished, and he could. Because he had nothing else he needed to do. Now, the things after that, though, unfinished creation. Creation became undone after the sin, so God went back to work. God went back to work and and spent ages setting the stage and building up to what we have opened up to in John. And John 1 opens up in this Genesis-like fashion to say God is going to fix, God is going to refinish what was undone. God is going to recreate what was messed up by sin. Jesus has already been presented to us as the better, as, as better than the law. He's been presented to us as the Word of God made flesh. And, and this recreation story is being told because John, God had created by His Word, He would recreate all things through His Word. The first, He merely spoke from heaven. This time, He's stepping on to earth. Redemption could only have come through Jesus because redemption requires a change from the inside out. The wine had ran out in creation a long time before Jesus showed up. There was no fruit. There was no life. And the law wasn't helping things. The religion wasn't fixing things. And that's why Hebrews tells us that Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. So Jesus, the builder, came to fix things himself. The wine had ran out. And Jesus came to bring new wine. And, and I'll, I'll say this. In the Old Testament era, the Jewish people turned to wine, and, and wine became a supplement and a replacement even for joy. The ancients figured out how to uh, turn grapes and her, turn fruit into a form of alcohol because the joy they weren't finding in this life because of sin, sorrow, and death, they had to look somewhere else for it. And because this life time and time again took instead of gave... Joy seemed impossible to find or experience natively or naturally in this world. And that's why wine became a supplement and a replacement for that. And not just the Jewish world, but every culture and all over the world. But Jesus, in Christ, this joy is made possible apart from a substance or anything else of this world. This joy is made possible through the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus replaced the water with new wine, true wine, heavenly wine, the Spirit of God, the source of joy, the presence of God who brings joy. Romans chapter 8, I'll, t- I'll show you some verses that you should study on your own sometime, but here's how Romans compares what, what religion offers and what Jesus offers and what we are left, make, left to make a decision about. For the law of the Spirit has, of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Meaning it gives you the ability, it gives you the possibility, it gives you the opportunity to find the joy that you haven't been able to find anywhere else. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God has done what you cannot do and what cannot be done apart from Jesus. By sending His own Son, the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And as Jesus filled those pots up and He turned that water, that dirty foot-washing water, into fruitful wine, He can do the same thing with the sin that is clogging up our veins. He can take what is in us and make something brand new. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of 
the Spirit. So you've got a choice to make every single day. You have the access to, you have the opportunity to live in the light of the joy of the Lord, in the light of what God has done through Christ and what He can do through you. You have this opportunity and this invitation in front of you every single day. It's up to you and it's up to your obedience to the Holy Spirit to experience the person that God has made you to be. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Those two options are in front of you every single day. And because Jesus could take water and turn it into wine, He can take whatever is in you and make it new. Romans 15 would say this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The power of God is the work of the Spirit in our lives. What was dead is now alive. What was tasteless is now tasteful. What was doomed is now full of delight and destiny. What once caused problems now has been given purpose. So the fruit of the Spirit, all these things that we know so often and we read and we quote and we just take for granted, these should be the evidence of what it means to have been given new wine, have been taken what was old and transformed into something new. And if we can read that list of fruit to the Spirit and not see those in our lives, we must look at ourselves in the mirror. We must examine ourselves in prayer and say, hey, if this has happened for me, if this sign is a practical application that I can see in my life, then something is missing. And it's not what God has done. And it's not the Spirit of God because He's not missing. He is present and He is alive and He is powerful. What am I, what have I not yielded to and what have I not surrendered to? Why am I not seeing these fruits in my life because the new wine has provided this opportunity? What am I missing? Jesus is the new wine. He is our recreation story and we can come to Him and find the hope that we need. And this is John's message to us. That Jesus takes what was old and makes it new. He takes what was dead and gives it life. He takes what was rotten and makes it fresh. He takes what was used and makes it useful again. So that you and I can know there's nothing, there's nothing about you that God can't make new. From your inner insecurities to your outer inabilities. The message, the story of the water turning to wine reminds you and reminds me there's nothing about you, there's nothing about me that God can't make new. There's nothing that God can't set free. So the invitation to you and to me. Jesus is the new wine. And He says to us, come and see, but it's better than that. He says, taste and see. See and believe. Believe. And receive the new wine, the new you, the better you that God has made possible.